Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fortnightly Weights. Um, <laughs> I'm Will. I'm joined by Alex. Alex, we had a little higher this last week, didn't we? We did. Uh, we I'll say pretty much thought like we'll raise the bat and chill out for a little bit. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I think I'll take that one um, on the chin. I think I was probably just a little bit lazy last week. That's unusual. Um, so, uh, so yeah, apologies, everyone. We we did get a few messages saying that people missed the boys. So uh, we we're sorry for that, but we're back. Yeah, so you're welcome. The boys are back in town to quote Thin Lizzy. Alex is just nodding. He's got nothing to add on that. <laughs> Look, we'll try and stick to weekly. Like, though we didn't actually name ourselves weekly weights, I want to make that really clear. We named ourselves weekly weights. And they're two very different things. One means every calendar week, and one means not necessarily strong. So we've never actually guaranteed that we would release episodes at all weekly. In fact, we started by releasing episodes more frequently than weekly, which... If you were upset about us not releasing a podcast for one week, then you should be upset by as well. Otherwise, you're being hypocritical. So really, we we didn't exactly let anybody down. We're just continuing to operate as an independent media franchise as we ought to. What do you think about that, Alex? I completely agree, Will. And I also think that anyone who is willing to complain about no episodes lately needs to go back and listen to old episodes because I could almost guarantee that no one out there has listened to every single episode except no. for maybe your mum. <laughs> you know, mum has said that some of our episodes are too technical and she can't get into them. So even my own mum hasn't listened to every single episode. Um, and with that note, if you also on that note, I should say, if you also find yourself unoccupied for an entire week by virtue of us not putting out some content, maybe you could write us a review. And somebody did go ahead and write us a review on the 26th of April. It was the French, the Fresh Prince of Boleyn. Have you any idea who that is? I have no idea, but I looked up Boleyn and it's in Melbourne. So, hmm. well, there you go. Someone in Melbourne. Somebody in Melbourne. That narrows it down pretty considerably. Um, says, great podcasts. Um, great podcast, guys. Binged every ep. Oh, there you go. Over the past six months doing cardio. Great banter between Alex and Will and very informative. I've learned a lot about programming and coaching through weekly weights. Very lucky to have had my cues answered on the pod. Mm, I narrowed it down a bit. Cheers, guys. Shuckers, shuckers, beers. Okay, well, obviously this person doesn't know me at all because they put a beer emoji in there. Alex, any guesses who it could be? Literally zero. Honestly, no idea. But whoever it was, thank you. You can come out of the shadows and identify yourself to us on Instagram. We'll be more than happy to shout you out properly. Guys, we do encourage reviews. We always enjoy reading them when we remember to check them. And we will read them out on air, particularly if they're amusing. So please do drop them in there. And also to add to what you said earlier, Will, if you're waiting around for a whole week for an hour of, an hour and a half of content from us, perhaps you need a hobby. Maybe. Maybe you need something mind. else to do. I mean, I mean, I'm struggling too because there's no sport on. So, uh, I don't know. 
So you're happy to criticize. I mean, pretty much you're doing what you're criticizing them for, which is criticizing others without actually bringing anything to the table. Well, I'm, I'm trying to get into craft beers, Will. So I've been trying a, a beer or two every couple of days. So my parents, I should say, my parents definitely think I'm depressed right now because here and there I've been bringing a bunch of drinks down to my room. And so I drink, I drink mostly cider. And so I'll buy one or two that I haven't had before. And then I'll buy a six pack of mercury, which are double strength ciders. And I'll bring like two mercuries and two or three other ciders down. So that's like quite a lot of drinks to my room. And just depending on what I'm vibing, I'll, you know, sip one at a time, either while playing some video games with my mates or like on a Zoom chat. So I'm not like completely on my own in my bedroom drinking, but, <laughs> but I'll come up periodically from down in the dungeon at like 5 p.m. carrying like you know six empty alcoholic beverages and my parents will be like oh you know did you have friends over or something and i have to tell them no and they honest to god just think i'm self-medicating like i got a problem well you could lie and say that you are having friends over because we actually are allowed to have friends over now so i could even not lie and just have friends over yes you could do that or if you're worried about your parents thinking that you're drinking too much you could just lie well i could also just lie about having drunk like, do you remember when you were a teenager and you got home from parties where you'd been drinking and you weren't allowed to be and you had to pretend to be sober <laughs> and play it cool in front of your parents? Oh, dude, I know that all too well. <laughs> I kept, I carried that into early adulthood because I had a degree of shame about drinking because I thought it was like pretty unhealthy and my parents would disapprove. So I always tried to act more sober than I was. Um, probably, honestly, till about the age of 25. I tried to be... I tried to make it out that I hadn't drunk anywhere near as much as I had and I was absolutely just wasted. Now I'm I lean sure, into it. I'm sure there were times where you couldn't hide it, Will. No, certainly not. I've had a few pretty vomity episodes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, to say the least. Uh, I've been picked up from North Sydney Oval at one stage at about three in the afternoon when I was completely legless. So, no, I've had one or two pretty... Three in the afternoon? Yeah, I was... I'd had some friends over for a little gatho, as we call it. Um, little gatho with the lads. And then <laughs> we were going to go watch. There was an A-League soccer game being played at North Sydney Oval. Um, for people who aren't from Sydney, it's like the best suburban football ground in Australia for sure. But it's just like one step below being the size that you could actually run like NRL games out of. Probably get like 8,000 people in it if you packed it. You reckon, Alex? Maybe. Uh, that's probably that's probably a few too many. Maybe maybe depends less. how many you can fit on the on the hill. But point is, great suburban football ground, and they had actually brought an A League game there. And the reason was because the Central Coast Mariners had partnered with um, with the Northbridge, which is where I live, soccer club. Um, and so they were playing a game there, and there was cheap tickets going. And so we were like, oh, let's like have some drinks and then go to the soccer, and then we'll go out. And then, as it happened, my dad's band were hired to play on... They've got this random band marquee, like, outside of the Oval in the park. And my dad's band had been hired to play there. So I was like, I'm just going to get wasted, watch my dad's band play music, and then totter into the Oval. And I just... I'd been given a bottle of Grey Goose vodka for my birthday, and I punished the majority of that bottle. And it just was hitting me slowly as I got to North Sydney. And then I remember buying a Turkish goslem from a little stand-up store. And Love those things. Great stuff. And I sat down to watch my dad's band play. 
and there was not many other people watching the band play. So it was pretty obvious that I was the guy who was sitting there watching them who couldn't stand up because when I did actually go to stand up, I couldn't. I straight up could not get up. I was like, I'm properly legless. <laughs> and then my mum and one of our near neighbours, who was the mother of one of my close childhood friends, had also come to watch the band and they just came across me completely unable to stand up. And so I just peaced out from all my friends and said, you know what, I'm going home because my lift is right here. And they basically shuttled me to the car and dumped me back in my bedroom and I proceeded to throw up all night. Good stuff. Anyway, that's <laughs> been one of our longest, very off-topic introductions. But that actually is a great segue to pause deadlifts. <laughs> which is which is the exercise that we're covering in today's variation masterclass. So Alex put up Alex put up a questions um, a questions tab. So popular popular responses were pause deadlifts and pin bench press. And I've also had somebody privately write to me and ask us to cover reaching variations. We can do that, but also a really good idea would be to go listen to the episodes that we've done with Jamie Smith of Melbourne Strength Culture. For today, we're going to do pause deadlifts and we'll keep this, we'll keep this segment running for as long as people like to hear it. So I guess Alex, um, first cab off the rank is talking about how pause deadlifts differ from the main lift. Um, so what's different between a pause deadlift and a normal deadlift? Do you want the uh, really, really obvious answer? <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of the line that I'm thinking along, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, so with the pause deadlift, obviously we're going to pause at some point during the concentric, so on the way up. Um, I guess that's probably the first, that's the first point of discussion is where we pause. So for you, Will, where would you suggest that people pause? Towards lockout, just off the floor, at the knee, what would you say? I think you can make a case for pausing at different places in the deadlift, but for the purposes that I prescribe them, I want people to pause just off the floor or like a significant way below the knee. Um, and the reason is, so like when we say, how does the pause deadlift differ from a normal deadlift in like in an ideal world, they would actually be the same lift, but you have paused just off the floor. Um, and were that the case, you probably almost wouldn't need to do a pause deadlift. Um, the reason I get people to do pause deadlifts in the first place normally is because I see them having an issue with getting enough early knee extension in the pull. So if you, if you have somebody who starts deadlifting and their shins are slightly inclined as they're about to start, so their knees just above or slightly ahead of the bar, um, that's a really good starting position. But then what you should see is that that knee moves back out of the way so the bar can go straight up. And a really common error with a lot of people is instead of that, they try and pull their shoulders up and back and the bar has to move out along their shin and away from them. So if you give somebody a pause deadlift just off of the floor and you say, hey, I want knees back before the pause, knees back after the pause, they learn to actually feel themselves load up their hips off of the floor and they feel what it's like to actually get that knee extension. And if they don't do it, the position there is really, really uncomfortable. So it gives them really good augmented feedback of that skill. Um, if you let people pause too high, then they can actually breeze through that area that you're trying to correct without actually having made any change. And then they can pause quite comfortably at the knee. So say you let somebody pause just above the knee and you're trying to coach early knee extension. All they're going to do is pull the bar around their knee and pretty much like rest it on their kneecap or, or on the sort of um, front aspect of their thighs and just chill out before they lock out, in which case they haven't really gotten anything from the movement. 
So for me, it's usually down there because that's why I tend to prescribe them. Um, Alex, you? Yeah, I agree. And um, not necessarily for the um, for starting the lift with knee extension, but for also learning to create lots of tension from the floor, but then also maintain the tension from the floor. Because a lot of people sort of, like, you know, try and get as tight as they can, but can't maintain it. And then that leads to issues later on in the pool. And a great way to overcome this issue is to pause nice and low and deliberately, deliberately move slowly in order to maintain your position. And then once you've held your pause, then you're able to finish the lift more similarly to how you're supposed to versus how you would if you just did it like, you know, in your strongest position now. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to express this well, but people who've done pause deadlifts will kind of understand. By forcing you to pause, it kind of teaches you to actually push with your legs a little bit better. Like people would think it's the opposite of like, you should facilitate people pushing with their legs to make them push with their legs more. But but if you pause and you have kind of just done a bit of a Yankee pull and then you continue to try and yank it from that stationary position, when you have no momentum aiding you, it just feels terrible. Whereas if from that position you do continue to push down, continue to pull in, it goes from feeling bad to feeling like efficient, but still bad. Does that make sense? Yes. A hundred percent. It's, it's to teach, to teach positioning, to teach tension, to teach patience. And then obviously to teach the sequencing of knee extension and then hip extension. Yeah. So like it can be a really, really good tool to sort of highlight someone's technical weakness, whether it be any of those four things or just reinforce good position for someone who already has relatively good position. Um, I think there's also one other benefit, which is it slows the bar speed down and it has you deliberately have to overcome that by trying to move quickly after the pause, which mimics sort of a slow competition deadlift a lot better than doing that same load without the pause. Yeah. So you can kind of get more volume in at a slightly lower load, beat yourself up slightly less, but it still mimics that, you know, nice slow lockout that you're going to experience, you know, when you're on the platform. Yeah, and kind of tied to that as well is if you pause again, where I like to do pauses, um, you are you are also spending more time in a position that's biomechanically difficult. Like when we deadlift, you sh- if you're doing a conventional deadlift, and this is kind of true of sumo. If you're doing a conventional deadlift, the point at which you are most mechanically disadvantaged is going to be like mid shin or just below the knee, um, and that's unless you've made really big postural compensation. So, like, say you deadlift with a reasonably flat back and you are getting your knees out of the way. At that point, you're not getting much leg drive anymore because your knee has come back a little bit. You're still in a lot of hip flexion, so your hamstrings and glutes having to support you. You're still quite bent over, so your back's doing quite a bit of work, having to work your brace. It's a really hard position to be in, and it's where often if, you, if you're missing on strength, things do start to go south. So again, by putting you in that position and forcing you to create tension there for a little bit longer, you can specifically strengthen that position. It's not quite perhaps as good as or the same as doing an isometric pull in that position, but it does give you just that little bit of extra work. It'd be a bit like maybe doing a spot press for bench press, you know, where you're, you're forcing yourself to actually get nice and tight and hold yourself in the position of most mechanical disadvantage. Yep, completely agree. So um, I guess the next point is then how does this differ muscularly to uh, just a competition deadlift? So for me, I would say, you know, biomechanically it is identical. 
like you mentioned earlier, just with an added pause. But I think that pause puts a little bit of extra pressure on your erectors and a little bit of extra pressure on your bracing and your core. So I think something that I've noticed um, is that, you know, even though my loads are much less for my pause deadlifts, my back pulls up a little bit, a little bit more tender in my erectors, you know, just muscular fatigue than it would having doing my normal deadlifts. Do you kind of find the same thing, Will? I don't, but I actually think that that says something about the difference in how we pull. Um, because for me, when I do a pause deadlift, I get specifically way more fatigue through my hamstrings and hips. And if we were to talk about like the differences in how we deadlift, you are slightly more back dominant of a puller. Whereas I do like, I get my knees out of the way quite well. I'm reasonably efficient mechanically. Um, but when I start to not be strong enough to grind through that area, so when my hamstrings and stuff do give out, then I don't have the back strength to finish deadlifts effectively. Um, I do. I think I like biomechanically, it should be the exact same lift, exactly like you said. And muscular demand is going to be increased on whichever structures you are loading in the position that you pause um, because you're loading them for longer and you're having to overcome that position from them. So if you are, if you are somebody like, say you did the worst deadlift technically in the world, you shoved your knees way forward, tried to throw your shoulders back and push the bar away from you, then you would feel that pause deadlifts were really, really hard on your back because they really, really put you in that position. If you're a reasonably balanced deadlifter, then you might find that it just makes things broadly harder and there might be one or two of the muscles that are weaker in the complex um, or that get slightly more taxed in your pull that cop a little bit of extra demand. And if you're somebody who has a technical or muscular weakness and has actually used the pause effectively to cue you towards maybe a slightly more efficient movement, then you're going to find that the muscle that previously wasn't quite doing its work through that region of the deadlift that is now being targeted is going to get lots and lots of extra strain through it. That would be kind of how I would see it is depending on your execution, certain muscles are just going to cop it more. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how about the pause deadlift with sumo? How does it differ to conventional? Like in principle, it shouldn't be enormously different. Um, but I haven't typically I haven't typically given as many paused deadlifts for my sumo lifters. Um, one person who likes doing them occasionally is JP. Um, the thing, the thing with sumo is if you have a reasonably good sumo position to begin with, your knees shouldn't really be ahead of the bar ever because they're actually operating in a plane that doesn't cross the bar. You know, it's only if they collapse inwards, which is just inefficient positioning um, that 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 would happen so you're not really like making a bar path correction you're literally just putting a little bit more load through through that lower end of the pool and because sumo is typically harder off the floor anyway and then if you're an efficient puller should get easier as you go i don't think there's as much contrast between between a paused sumo deadlift and a normal sumo in terms of feel um so i haven't typically used it but it's not to say i'm completely against it i just haven't typically um do you have any particular thoughts on that um i think the first consideration is just the loading parameters like you mentioned it's going to be much harder off the floor for a sumo generally speaking than conventional so i would say that the um your one rm pause sumo deadlift would be a lot closer to your one rm sumo than the other than with conventional to a pause conventional um so I think that's the first consideration is that you could probably get a little bit more load out of it 
whether you thought that was a good strategy or not, you could probably get away with doing a little bit more load for poor sumos than you could for um, pause conventionals. Um, and the other thing, like you mentioned, if you are someone who does lose position from the floor, it can be a good way to sort of correct that habit and sort of get you out of that bad habit. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, it's sort of a similar idea with uh, conventional versus sumo for the pause. Um, yeah. did- I guess, I guess if you are someone like, I don't think I have many lifters like this, so I haven't been as inclined to do it, but you know how some sumo deadlifters as they go to start, they actually do push their knee forward towards their toe. As they initiate the lift, they try and like push their hip to the bar and their weight drifts forward too far on their foot. And the knee actually gets more in the way as they start pulling. If you're mm-hmm. somebody who did that, then maybe a pause would actually be a pretty good way to correct it because you'd feel terrible every time you did one. Um, but I haven't, had to address that specific problem in quite a while. So I haven't really used it. Mm. Yeah. I think, think something like that or like a deliberately slow tempo to the knee is probably the way to go fixing that issue. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Um, um, how about phases? So when would we generally look to program um, in a pause deadlift in a context of sort of a general training cycle? Uh, I, you could make a case for it pretty much all the time except i don't like to use them late in a peak so i'll go quickly phase by phase and say where i could see it playing good like a good role so if you're in like some type of an introductory phase or a hypertrophy phase and you have somebody who just typically is not very strong in a hinging pattern then you could use it there as a regression from a normal deadlift to really like coach them towards using their hips more effectively before you start reintroducing more load and trying to actually get them to deadlift as you normally would. And that could either be as their main loading day on deadlifts because you'd be doing a whole bunch of non-specific work to just do general hypertrophy and strengthening and stuff anyway, or as their secondary day and load it more like technique work. Um, so you could do it in that phase there. In general strength phases um, or just the majority of training, I think they're just a really, really good secondary deadlifting variation for anybody who fits in the the descriptions we spoke about before. So needing technical correction or just needing more positional strength, which is most people. So great for use there. And then during a peak, um, you could use them um, by all means, but because, because typically what we see as people go to peak is that they need a little bit more contrast um, between their harder deadlift days and their easier deadlift days. Um, it's usually, it's usually easier to just drop the pause back to just being easy deadlifts so that you're sufficiently recovered to deadlift well. Um, so there's no reason that you like couldn't use it, that it would be a terrible idea, but it might just suit you better to just practice deadlifting the way you normally do and just practice moving weights quickly as best you can and being sufficiently recovered to pull heavy when you have to. So I probably wouldn't use it in the peak unless I had a very compelling reason for that individual. Alex? Yeah, I agree with the um, volume and general strength phases, but I think you could probably find an argument to put them in in a peaking phase um, because the loads are going to be lighter than you know the relative difficulty with a, without the pause. I think you can keep it in there to feel like slow lockouts, which is going to help you on your harder day without actually using the same load that you would need without the pause, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, but when, when in the week would you use that and how hard would you make them? 
typically like i know this is going to be individual but um you'd want so like if you're you'd probably want one to two rpe lower than your harder day um for probably slightly less volume than your harder day yep um and then you know spaced spaced three or four days apart sure so i mean that like what you just did was basically describe what I would call like my typical easier deadlift day. And I guess the only reason I might move away from the pause, um, away from the pause in those last few weeks is where I like where the main deadlift day is already really taxing. So the secondary day is almost like not going to be overloading or difficult anyway. It's just getting people sort of greasing that movement again. Um, in which case, if I'm not loading it hard enough to really give them that extra feedback that you might get from a pause, um, cause I don't want things to slow down, but it is a chance for them to just move weights easily and feel that contrast in speed and difficulty really exaggerated. And that was going to have them prepared better for the heavy day. That might be why I'd be less inclined to put it in, but I could also totally see, totally see making the case for it, particularly for somebody for whom their heavier deadlifts just aren't that taxing for them or they recover quite well. And it, it just doesn't seem to be as much of a problem, you know? Yeah, I think there's certainly a case for both in that um, in that instance. But you'd have to sort of weigh up the weigh up all the variables. For sure. All right. I don't really have much more to say on pause deadlifts. Do you? Um. No. I'm just looking through the questions we've got. No, I think that's probably. I think that probably covers it. All right. Well, we're now going to move from being technical and you know being mentors of coaches. Um, and powerlifting experts and move into new new waters for our podcast, which is being current affairs journalists. We've actually, to be fair, we've been probably the most current affairs journalisty powerlifting podcast in the world so far, having sort of broken the Wilkes hating the IPF story. We didn't really break that <laughs> at all. Everyone knew that, um, but we we had the first exclusive interview. But we're now delving into celebrity spats and gossip. Um, we're going to talk about Eddie Hall and Thor Bjornsson's um, 500 and 501 kilo deadlifts, respectively. Alex, why don't you just set the scene for people? What's what's going on? Well, I figured there's not a lot of sport going on at the moment, and obviously there's no powerlifting comps going on at the moment. So I thought it would be a good idea to kind of get everyone excited about this one little thing that was able to happen. So uh, I think it was 2016 Eddie Hall deadlifted 500 kilos. That's correct. It was 2016. Um, which at the time was, I believe, a 38 kilo world record. That sounds correct. I believe that's the case. I don't have notes in front of me. 38 kilos, which 462. It's 462 about 1,010 pounds. That uh, sounds four, correct. 455 is 1,000, so seven. It'd be 1,020. Yeah, that sounds correct. That was um, that was Andy Bolton, or no? That was Benedict Magnuson, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Eddie breaks world record by thirty-eight kilos, which is absolutely ridiculous because it's like what about seven percent? Yeah, something crazy. Which is just a huge, huge, huge number. Um, and I remember when I first saw it, I was like, "That can't be right. Like, that's got to be a typo. Are you sure it wasn't four hundred kilos?" Um. Anyway, since 2017 World's Strongest Man, um, 
Thor called Eddie Hall a cheat uh, when Eddie won World's Strongest Man in 2017. And since then, they've kind of had this little internet beef and they've been going back and, f- they've been going back and forth um, on Instagram, taking shots at each other. And um, how long has Ed, uh, Thor been saying he was going to do 501? It's been like around a year. About a year. And he's been working with Sebastian Oreb, Australian strength coach. Um, I don't know for how long they've been working together. They did a powerlifting competition um, where he'd been coached into that by him and that was last year, wasn't it? So it's been, they've been working together for probably 18 months or more. Yeah, so Thor is six foot nine and he weighs about 210 to, two, to 220 kilos or something. Like he's an absolutely giant human being. I think he and weighed 500 pounds when he did the 500 deadlift. Really? I'm not, yeah, I'm not 100% on that. I remember... JP, when I was talking to him about this, basically said that he weighed more in kilos than I do in pounds when he went to do that pool, which is nuts. So it was only 2.2 times body weight. That's pretty shit. Yeah, it's actually kind of pathetic when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, so for you know the last at least nine months or so, Thor's been training to beat Eddie's deadlift record. And obviously he's gained a lot of weight in the process because I believe he's about 180 or 190 when he does World's Strongest Man. So he put on weight for this. He's obviously trained really hard for it, specifically for it. And then we were hit with COVID and the competition that it was supposed to do it at. And I believe there was a couple of other strongman competitors trying to break other records, like, you know, overhead records or whatever. Mm. Um, the competition was canceled and he made an appeal to the strongman board that the record should still count if he did it at home, you know, weighed every plate, had a legit referee, etc. Um Anyway, he did the lift. It was a fucking awesome lift. What do you think about the lift, Will? Um, for my mind, like by strongman standards, by the way, absolutely without question, a legitimate deadlift. They oh, actually yeah. weighed all the plates, um, weighed all the plates on the live stream. And I think I want to say that there was like in the hundreds of thousands of viewers watching this live stream, I think like close to a million people i'm not 100 percent on that it was either 90,000 or 900,000 wasn't it on espn uh yes espn did stream it live um i've got it googled now i was trying to find i was trying to find the viewer numbers but but yeah anyway point is like they weighed all the plates it weighed 501 kilos he did it it was awesome like execution wise excellent it actually looked like he probably had a little bit more in the tank Maybe not a crazy amount more, but like as I would have probably believed that he could have pulled 510. Yeah. Um, like great lift, really smooth, plainly locked out, no questions about it, 501 kilo deadlift. And it was extraordinary for mine. I thought it was one of the most impressive beats I've ever seen a human achieve. Yeah, I completely agree. Incredible. First question mm-hmm. Do we think that it should count as a world record given he was did, done in his own home? Yeah, you know, like I was walking around yesterday thinking about this um, because like on the one hand, like strongman competition is strongman competition, right? Like there's not a huge amount of standardization of the lifts. Um, and like everybody, everybody competes against whoever is at that event and, and you get points on the basis of winning. Um, but you know, you count world records from events that are otherwise not standardized. You don't know when the deadlift came in the order of the events. You don't really know what the conditions are like, like 
they don't really have to weigh in, but like you don't, you just don't know pretty much anything at strongman competitions except that they did it and there was a referee there and everybody else had to do it the same way. And if they lifted the most, they lifted the most. Well, supposedly this competition that he was signing up for, he was only going to deadlift anyway. Like he was only there to break the deadlift record. Right. So, like he wasn't doing any stone loading or any, anything else. So for me, when I, when I hear that, I'm like, I don't see how it's actually any different. Um, and certainly if somebody said to me, what's the heaviest deadlift ever done? I wouldn't be like, Eddie Hall deadlifted 500, but like rumor has it, somebody else has done more in their basement or something. Like the plates weighed 501. There was a referee there. It was done clearly to the standards. Um, and there was a ref, like, like I said, sorry, there was a referee present. For mine, it's the heaviest deadlift ever done. But I'm not sure if that, like, because there isn't sort of a sufficiently rigorous process for saying this is what a strongman world record is, I don't know how you could exclude it reasonably, if you know what I mean. Like, if there was records in strongman that said these are the records for world's strongest man in the same way that we have, like, Olympic record swimming times and things, then you could exclude it. That would make sense because it wasn't done in the competition. But in every other respect, it meets the criteria to me for being a world record. So I would, I would count it as one, I think. You? See, like I agree with everything you said, but at the same time, it wasn't done in a legitimate competition. And there are certain things that you just can't simulate in your own gym. Like the crowd, the other competitors being there. Like there's so many things that could potentially happen in the lead up to your attempt. Like, you know, someone could come and talk to you. You could fucking lock eyes with a competitor. Like that's just never going to happen if you're in your own basement, you know, in your own gym, home gym, whatever, with all your people around you. Like it's going to be potentially as good as it could possibly be. Mm. But like, Okay, there is still something different, though, about the standard that we have to hold this to, to the standard of powerlifting. Like, as a powerlifter, I agree. If somebody said, I got my three best friends over who were referees, I used my comp spec equipment, like, take it as read that everything weighed what it was meant to weigh, and the referees treated me fairly. I did a mock meet in my, like, in my garage. I adhered to all the rules of the meet. I'm submitting these as records, like world records for powerlifting. I would not accept it, right? Um, because powerlifting has really, really well-defined structures of what constitutes a competition. Um, and I don't think that lifts perform outside, performed outside of competition should be regarded as world records. But for, for strongman, the sport is like, it's just not as well-defined. And therefore, I don't think you can be as rigorous as that. I agree that, that the conditions under which he performed it are not the same as the conditions under which Eddie Hall lifted 500, but it's still a heavier deadlift and the, the conditions that Eddie Hall lifted 500 on, under weren't like strictly stipulated by rules to ensure that every deadlift ever performed in strongman competition is standardized, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree with the, the standardized stuff. I just think that... Um those those things that you can't predict in competition um like it's it can't be it can't be understated like have you ever been to a competition and the warm-up area feels different and you kind of throws you off a little bit yeah every time 
like he's in his own gym warming up warming up on the bar that he competed on i don't know what eddie did but eddie lifted in front of a huge crowd at a big stadium i think there was like 10,000 people there yeah i just i think it's obviously the biggest deadlift ever and it should be considered the biggest deadlift ever but to call it like the best federation deadlift ever i don't think is the right thing because it wasn't under a federation there wasn't you know the same judging there wasn't the same crowds there wasn't there wasn't actually any competitors either i just think like they're different things so like we could maybe come to some agreement where i said like if the guinness book of world records said what's the heaviest deadlift ever we could agree it was thor's yes but at world's strongest man when they next go do a deadlift deadlift competition in world's strongest man or in European strongman championships or whatever it happens to be, it should say like, it should say current record 500. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I do. Okay. Well that like I, I consider reasonable, but I certainly wouldn't exclude Hathor's one from the discussion. Oh no, it's, it's, uh, it's easily the best deadlift ever. It's the heaviest. It was, Definitely easier than Eddie's. Mm. Um, I'm not taking that away at all. I just think given the circumstances, it's a little bit hard to justify it being considered the official record if the competition itself wasn't official. Which of the two do you think is more impressive? Thoughts. Why? Because it was more and it was easier. (laughs) I mean, like, as in objectively speaking, that's true. But at the same time, you just mentioned like, the stress of competing against competition, you know, the stress of like lifting before other people or the fact that that atmosphere is different. And then there's also something that I don't think can be discounted, which is like as silly as it sounds, the numerical barrier of pulling 500 being the first person to do that. And what that means for like changing people's expectations of what's humanly possible, the degree to which Eddie Hall beat the previous record. So say it was 38 kilos, which sounds about correct or 32 kilos, whatever you said. Um, I think it was the degree, the degree to which he left, he left what we previously thought was possible behind. Um, and like all of those things to me actually make Eddie's like, you know, you like, you could hear my superlative review of what, Thor did when he pulled 500 at the start of this segment. I was like, it's one of the most impressive things I've ever seen a human do ever. But when Eddie Hall pulled 500 kilos, it literally like changed my concept of what is humanly possible um, in a way that, that Thor's one didn't as astonishing as it was um, just because of how far, how far of a leap forward it was. So to me, that's actually still the more impressive of the two. I I certainly agree that um, he just raised the bar by so much more than anyone ever had. But like, let's, let's use a, an example in sprinting. Let's use a sprinting example. Yeah. Let's say no one had ever sprinted 10 seconds under 10 seconds in the hundred before. Yeah. And someone did nine ninety nine. Yeah. That would be like incredible. He's broken the barrier, but then what would be more incredible would be someone doing nine ninety eight. Sure. But like a slightly better analogy would be, Nobody's ever sprinted under 10-2. Somebody comes along and sprints 9.99. And then like four years later, somebody comes and does 9.98. Yeah. 
998 still incredible, but it's literally so close to what this other person did that completely shook your perceptions that it doesn't have the same effect. If somebody after the 999 came and did like 966, like you say in Bolt style, then I would literally shit the bed. I'd be like, oh my God, that's stupid. That's literally just changed humanity to me. But basically replicating another feat that has already been done is like still astonishing. It's incredible. It's better, but it's not as impressive. It doesn't shake me as much. It might, yeah, it might not have the the impact or like the the, the resonance initially mm. that you know the redo would. But also you have to take into account that Thor's was easier. I reckon he had five fifteen to five twenty in him. Yeah, I mean, and like like it's it's like the ten two, and then someone runs nine nine, and then someone runs nine nine eight but you know jogs the last 20 meters like Usain Bolt does <laughs> yeah does the <laughs> yeah the like, that's kilo. probably that's probably a better analogy yeah well that was also iconic but that was iconic because I just love it when people are feeling themselves and pop off like that like that was sick um yeah. but okay. right, so next, I actually next question. want to talk about something related okay because so who I, I, I'm about to ask a rhetorical question pretend I'm with you raise your hand if you've heard about like the four minute mile barrier and how when Roger Bannister broke it there was suddenly a rush of people who broke the four minute mile barrier and that that was described by the changing psychological limitations on humans when they realized that it actually was possible and could be done bunch of people have probably raised their hands thank you you can put them down now um I always found that really interesting um and I was reading about it and there was an article um, that was on scienceofrunning.com. Um, and I think it came out in 2017. And it was a, it was a really interesting counter argument to it. And obviously this relates because what I just said was like the idea of pulling over 500 kilos was just fucking stupid up until recently. And in the same way, when Julius Maddox probably benches 800 pounds soon, it's going to be completely nuts. Um, but that possibility to me was nuts. And I think it has changed, changed the way in which people approach things. But then this, this article on science of running, it's called the Roger Bannister effect, the myth of the psychological break, breakthrough makes a really good counter argument. And basically what they say is, is that a large part of that boom in running records um, in the mid fifties can probably be attributed to world war two. Because in, um, in the early 40s, there were a couple of Swiss people who were trading the records because obviously the Swiss weren't, weren't punished by World War II as much as the rest of Europe or the rest of the world generally. But that pretty much everybody else had athletic careers halted and lots of incredibly talented people unfortunately die. Um, and then the, what we saw in the four-minute mile where within the space of three years, I think nine or 12 other people broke the barrier was also played out pretty much exactly the same in other middle and long distance events. And they also get some data from the 1500, which like given that the four minute mile was supposedly this psychological barrier, this mathematical, or sorry, the psychological barrier because four minutes is a round number and so on. Um, you would expect that if you looked at the 1500 where there wasn't like a four minute barrier to break, there was just like, will people improve? by a similar magnitude or a greater magnitude, you would expect um, you would expect that there wasn't a similar change. 
in the records. You would expect the 1500 just to have smoothly increased. Um, but they actually saw pretty much the exact same pattern of improvement there as well, which is to say that probably the psychological part didn't play anything like as strong of a strong of a role in determining the change in performance as as just having more more talent entering the race as it were um and trying to run four minute miles did in the same way maybe Hatthor Bjornsson was always going to have the ability to deadlift 501 and then maybe 510 and then maybe 520 whether or not Eddie Hall had already done it if he put his mind to it and the only question I guess that leaves you with is like would he have bothered to dedicate like a year of training to trying to do this deadlift that nobody else could do unless there was this carrot dangled before him of, of beating, beating this amazing world record that people thought wouldn't be touched and sort of thumbing his nose at somebody who apparently, apparently he doesn't particularly like um, because of their strongman rivalry. And I don't know, but it's very interesting to think about. Yeah. I don't think he would have dedicated that much time had they not had that beef but maybe he would have looked at the 462 or whatever the previous record was and said, I want to do 500 first, you know? Maybe. But he also could have said, oh, well, I might as well do 465. True. I mean, it's, it's very clear that he had the potential and he's like, you know, the absolute one in a billion genetic freak to be able to do it. Yeah. And I don't know if that mental, I don't really know if that mental stuff mattered, matters as much as, as uh, some people might think. Well, who can know? But either way, very impressive. I hope that somebody comes along and basically pushes Thor um, because I suspect that he won't be able to deadlift 520 or anything unless there is a reason for him to continue to specialise and really, really yeah. work for it. Agreed. So whether or not Eddie Hall makes a like, comeback to strongman and nearly kills himself chasing the record again, or whether somebody equally talented comes along. I know there is a strongman competitor who has deadlifted something like 560 kilos off, off blocks just below the knee. Um, I heard that on, it might be 560. It's a crazy number. I heard that on Stronger by Science. I'll try and find out the name of the guy. Um, like whether somebody else comes along and also does 500, I don't know, but I would like to see it continue because I think it's pretty cool. And I, I do want to sort of see where the limits lie. Well, I, I don't think either of them will get back to 500 because they're going to spend the next 18 months losing a bunch of weight for this boxing match, which we're going to talk about next. Yeah, who's going to win? I think Eddie will kill him. You, what? <laughs> Bullshit. Why do you think he'll win? Man, I think the way... Okay, first of all, he has a more athletic background. Like He's a, a swimmer. He's actually done a few boxing matches in his life. Okay, so I didn't know he actually has some experience. He's a, a sort of more well-developed athlete and he's certainly more mobile than Thor, obviously, because Thor is so massive at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's just got that, like, like that bad part of London, like, fuck you attitude, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think, like, were all things other than attitude equal... Eddie would cream him. Um, I, like, I do honestly think, like, they're both obviously hyper-competitive. You said Eddie, Eddie would cream him? Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I Like, I said, they're both obviously hyper-competitive, but, like, Eddie strikes me as really having a bee in his bonnet. 
and just like not having any um, any quit in him. But I don't know. Like, I didn't know that Eddie had done some boxing in the past, but presuming that they were both even like close to equally talented, I just think that Thor's reach would be such an advantage and particularly punching down. Um, like, I think it would be very, very hard. Eddie might be able to win on points just by getting a whole bunch of body blows in. But like, I feel like he's never going to be able to hit Thor in the head. And Thor would just be able to stay out of his range and then just bop him in the face a few times and eventually he'd be done. Like, I don't know much about fighting, but that just seems like such a big advantage. I mean, Eddie's not five foot ten. Like, he's six two. Yeah, but that's still six or seven inches, Alex. That's like, that's like you yeah. fighting me. Me fighting who? Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all know how that would go. Yeah, it's terribly for me. <laughs> um, no, like like Mike Tyson won the heavyweight boxing title at five foot ten against guys who are six three, six four. Like routinely, he beat the shit out of everyone. Okay, better question. Eddie versus Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson's Mike, coming out of Mike Tyson ruins anyone. I actually have you, have you seen the footage? <laughs> yeah, he's I was actually gonna bro. I was actually gonna bring this up. Like I was um talking to my mates from basketball in this group chat and um someone was like, Um, Paul Gallon wants to fight Mike Tyson. Yeah, I didn't I send this to you? No, I don't oh, I don't know if you did. I, I John I sent it to me. Anyway, someone sent me this thing like Paul Gallon wants to fight Mike Tyson. And then we started chatting about like how much it would cost for us to go in the ring with Mike Tyson. Yeah. My initial, my initial was uh, 500K if I get to wear a headgear. Yeah. And a million if I don't get to wear a headgear. And then every video that I've seen, I've added a million to my asking price immediately. <laughs> like it remember- is unbelievable how fast and powerful he is at 53 years old. I remember Amir Fazeli, who was on episode two, posting this picture of Mike Tyson hitting a pad back in his prime at one stage. And, like, just his face as well. Like, his whole body was literally just, like, rippling muscle. And you could see how much force was in the blow. And, like, the bag was literally, like, bending as he hit it, which is, like, you know, that's, like, the comic book thing. But it was crazy. But just the look on his face as well when he was hitting that thing, I was like, there is no way on earth you could pay me to get in there so what happened is i did send you a picture of that um rumors were going around that sonny bill williams was gonna fight was gonna fight um mike tyson and sonny bill good night dead literally dead i think sonny bill's like eight no in boxing which is like not a terrible record but most of the people he's fought have been pretty much scrubs yeah have you Um, seen have you seen any of the fights dreadful Sonny was like this chiseled, like god of a man, and he's fighting like these fat guys. But Sonny Bill, like to his credit, everything he ever says publicly is incredibly humble. And he he basically, I read the quotes from him. He was like, you know, I like it would be an absolute honor for me to for me to get in the ring with somebody like Mike Tyson. He's a legend of the sport, um, and you know, with the amount of respect that I have for the guy. There's, there's no way that I could possibly forgo such an amazing opportunity. I'd be thrilled if he wanted to do something like that with me. Like, you know, like, like all these things where you're like, wow, that's like incredibly humble. And somebody obviously takes the opportunity seriously and recognizes that he'd be going up against one of the greatest of all time. And Mike Tyson's response was basically, I'm not going to fight a football player. That would be an insult to boxing. Um, but Paul Gallon on the back of that 
was in there saying he'd do it too. And I was like, mate, like <laughs> you, you would die. And I think it was one of the Aussie boxing personalities. It wasn't Costa Zoo. Um, what was the other guy's um, name? I think he starts with an F. Anyway, he basically said... Danny that, Green? No. Nah. Um, basically, they were saying, like, there would be legitimate concerns for the safety of either of them if they fought him. Like, they might die. Um, and if people are saying that about, like, people who have ostensibly done professional boxing, I don't know what you'd have to pay me to get in the ring with that guy. But I think he would absolutely flatten either of them. I think if he got in the ring with either of these two dudes, it'd be, like lights out very quickly he would like probably kill thor and thor is very big imagine that after everything that they had to do to kill him in game of thrones just put him in the ring spoiler with alert what's that spoiler alert oh shit sorry everybody um don't worry i if haven't seen haven't it watched, <laughs> if you haven't watched the eighth season yet don't bother it's so bad um actually that is something that pissed me off if you ever want to get me angry for a fight remind me about how fucking badly they ruined game of thrones towards the end i just gave up um anyway mike tyson wins after that i think thor wins just by virtue of by virtue of reach but i'm not confident in that and then coming in last but never giving up i think is eddie hall Dude, eddie hall is gonna flatten thor can we bet a hundred dollars live on the podcast <sighs> you know it's what? 18 months away will yeah, fuck it. You don't know what the value of money is going to be in 18 months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100 bucks. Okay, fine. I'll put it aside now. Um, final question, though, is do you really think that the beef is legit between them or do you reckon it's all put on? I think some of it's put on, um, particularly the stuff in the lead up to the 501 where they were going back and forth each other quite frequently. Yeah. I think a lot of that was like pretty WWE professional wrestler-esque, like just like pumping it up for the sake of pumping it up so that they could then sell the fight afterwards. Um, But I do think there is genuine dislike and there has been, you know, for a long time. Yeah, I'm like, I think... I think that there is a degree of dislike under it, but I would say like, I'm a little bit cynical. I would say a very large part of it is put on. And I did hear like, um, again, I'm going to have to credit other sources for this. Um, On Iron Culture, they were having a very similar but short discussion. And they brought up a story where I think it was to do with the Viking press or the log press world record that um, that Eddie at one stage got um, there was there was a lot of beef going on between him and another strongman um, for quite a while, and then it sort of came to light that that was basically just being done to engineer hype around it. So as in, he already has a track record of being being willing to do that. It makes sense from from both of their perspectives because the fight is worth millions of dollars to both of them, which is much much more than they ever win for winning World's Strongest Man. Um, and so, and like also Eddie had supposedly retired and then is sort of coming back and is obviously trying to continue to monetize his, um, his success as an athlete, which is fine and fair game to him. Um, but I suspect that a lot more of it is put on than, um, 
then isn't. I know the dispute around, I think it was the 2017 World's Strongest Man um, where where Thor basically said that things were engineered to help Eddie win. Um, 2017. 2017, yeah. Um, that, like, there's probably a degree of legitimate grievance there because I think that that was something that was actually brought up at the time. But whether, like, I presume that that might have been brought up and then that's the type of thing that people can sort of shake hands and walk away from after the fact, like that's the type of thing you might do in like a heated athletic rivalry moment. And then afterwards be like, Oh, you know, like life goes on sports sport. I don't know. Maybe they really do hate each other off the back of that. Um, but I suspect that they've just decided to leverage that and then really lean into it with this more recent stuff. Once they decided they're going to try and make some money off it. Um, and it's, it's to their mutual benefit. So to me, I can believe that far more than I can believe that these two dudes who share so much in common, really, really actually hate each other and want to get in the ring and beat each other's brains out. Like, I think that that's just a fun narrative that they're putting out to make it more fun for us to watch them. I'm not sure, man. I think like if you, if you go on YouTube, a lot of the strongmen have their own YouTube channels mm. and Thor seems to be the only one who never collaborates with the other guys. So like, you know, Brian Shaw and, and Z and, and uh, Eddie and stuff and Robert Oberst, they're all kind of, featuring in each other's videos and like, you know, helping trying to promote each other, whereas Thor kind of sticks to himself. So I, I can see a scenario where like, you know, maybe Thor just doesn't want to be friends with competitors and maybe that's an Icelandic thing. Yeah. But it could also be because he has always wanted to pursue a career that was not just limited to strongman. And so like there is actually a documentary on Netflix, um, and it's, I don't think it's called Strong because Eddie Hall's one is literally called Eddie Hall Strong. But there's one about the lead into the Arnold's um, where they have Eddie Hall, Zadrina Sapikas, Brian Shaw and Hatfield Bjornsson. And they're, they're tracking all of them in the lead up to this competition, all determined to win. And they're interviewing all of them and stuff. And Hatfield is really interesting because he talks about how like he does want to actually you know, make it as an actor. Um, and like do all these things and use use his strongman platform to really launch himself to greater stuff. And, you know, he's writing letters back to people who've written him fan letters and things. And he's just, I think he's probably more preoccupied with not just being strongman rather than being somebody who just would refuse to collaborate with other people. I think he wants to branch out. And so being incredibly insular, like that's just not in his interest. Yeah, I mean... I think like there's a bit to be said about, you know, as a competitor, if someone calls you a cheater, I think that is well and truly over the line. And I know that if someone accused me of cheating, I probably wouldn't like, I wouldn't be happy with that. And I probably wouldn't forgive them. So I think like, if, have you been watching the Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan documentaries? No, I actually haven't. I've been intending to, but like, I'm not really a massive basketball fan. So I don't know if I'd get into it. You would love it, man. It's so good. But there's in one of the episodes to talk about um, this particular team was really dirty. The Pistons, the bad boy Pistons. And they used to like just smack Jordan. Like there was a um, defensive strategy called the Jordan rules, which basically meant whenever Jordan left his feet, you put him back on the floor. So like he's getting hammered. Um, and anyway, Jordan basically realized he needed to get in the gym and get stronger. So he like gets in the gym, gets stronger, and he eventually breaks through and beats this team who he'd had trouble with for a couple of seasons. And as he'd beaten them, 
they left the four um, in game four. It was 4-0 in the series. They walked off the court past their bench and didn't shake hands before the game had finished. And like, this is 30 years later, like two competitors going at it and Jordan has not forgiven the star guy from the Pistons in 30 years. To be fair, Michael Jordan is a pretty unusual person um, and his degree of competitiveness oh, yeah. <laughs> is like something else. But yeah, I agree. If somebody called me a cheat, particularly unfounded, if I actually cheated, I'd be annoyed that I was cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, fuck. Um, but no, if somebody, like, if somebody calls me a cheater, I would expect them to apologize, though I'd be willing to accept an apology were it genuine. You know, I like, I don't think I would ever, I don't think I would ever hold that grudge forever. If I, like, if somebody was like, you know what, I didn't mean it and that was wrong with me. I wouldn't be like, no, nah, fuck you anyway for, for saying that to me. I'd get it. Doesn't, it doesn't seem like Thor's tried to apologize. It seems like they've just up the ante, up the ante. Yeah. But like, but say that Eddie Hall said to him, hey mate, like, let's have this fight, you know, and do all these things. You don't know what discussions they've had in the background. Like, yeah, of course. Thor might have been like, you know what, man, I want to collaborate with you and do this thing. I'm sorry that I said that, but like, you know, maybe we can leverage that to our advantage. That's possible. Yeah. Like Eddie definitely has a track record of trash talking other people. In that documentary, the Netflix one that I was telling you about, um, he he's constantly calling um, Brian Shaw. And just calling him fat. It's really funny. <laughs> Whenever Brian Shaw answers the phone, he literally just calls him a fat, bald fuck. And he does it in his stupid British accent. And I just love it. It's so funny. So obviously that's a far cry from calling somebody a cheater or telling him you're going to like bash their brains out. But he's not above trash talk and enjoying it either. Yeah, I, th- I just think there's a line as a competitor if you're... Like, I, th- I think like that's crossing the line. And I genuinely, I genuinely think that there is some, some level of hatred towards each other. Even like, even if they have like made up, this that's still, that's still there. Like that's the seeds of their relationship. Yeah, but they could also just be like both very competitive people. And in the same way that like, like if there's somebody that you compete with really closely for as long as you are competing with them, it like irks you to see them succeed and you just want to flatten them every time you compete against them. You might not actually hate them as an individual, mm. you know? All right. We're going to leave off this podcast, but before we do, Alex, I'm going to give you an underrated, overrated, properly rated. Okay. I got one as well. All right. World's strongest man. That's it. What do you mean? Like the competition, competition or being world's strongest man? No, the competition. Um, underrated. Underrated. Yeah. Okay. Explain. Well, I mean, we we live in the powerlifting bubble, yeah. And you know, like we don't hear a lot about it unless there's stuff like this going on. Um. Sure. So I think, you know, for the people who I'm associated with, I think it's generally underappreciated. And like some of the shit they do is fucking incredible, and you know the combination of strength and like, you know conditioning and being able to move and run and like the size that they are, it's actually really, really impressive and, you know, far more impressive than top level powerlifting. Yeah. Athletically, I think it's much more impressive than top level powerlifting. I've heard that world's strongest man is very much a television event though, where like they will do and redo 
events so that they can like film them and actually have a good spectacle put together and that like pretty much everything about it is engineered to be show business and so from a perspective of like the absolute sanctity of that competition i think it's probably somewhat overrated right Right. i didn't know that yeah but from the from the perspective of like are they athletically impressive do i think it's a way cooler title than ipf world champion by a mile um and like just as athletes and for fun do i think it's good like underrated i think world strongest man is great and it was particularly great when they had the ridiculous commentary like when bill kazmaier was there being like oh yeah man like you know this event does blah and just speaking so gruffly and stupidly loved it and when they had like magnus of magnuson and stuff yelling like viking power when he lifted things amazing like couldn't think of better television i um i think there's something special about sports that have like no weight class like strength sports that have no weight class like i think just letting people be as big and as strong as they possibly can is like there's something really special about that like when you watch the super heavyweight powerlifters you know watching strong men and stuff it's like it's just something a little bit different there's no real like cap on how good someone can get whereas like an 83 kilo powerlifter there's there's a firm cap on how much muscle they can hold and all those yeah, kind of it's, things. It's a little it bit more like limitations. What can humans do? Like, yeah, it's like, it's like you see the freakiest shit possible. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Also, before I let you go, the, um, the characters as well, something that Strongman does. And like, obviously we've spent the majority of this podcast talking about two of them. Something that Strongman does that a lot of other niche sports do that make them so interesting. And like basketball does it quite well too is like you start to develop an affinity and an understanding of the personality of the people who are competing. And that just makes it so much more richly interesting and like, like lame comparison, but you see the same things sometimes in like esports, where watching like video games are interesting in the mildest sense. Alex doesn't like them. Some are good watching, but they're twice as good watching. If there's like, if there's a bit of a personal story, you know, behind people and their rivalries and stuff. Like it's not sufficient when you watch sports that are individual sports like that. It's very rare that you are like just a fan of a club in the same way that you're like a fan of the Houston Rockets, right? Or like people might be a Liverpool soccer supporter and they're going to follow Liverpool irrespective. Whereas when you actually, when you really like particular athletes and you follow them and you care about their story, you're drawn to follow them wherever they go and whatever they do. And it just gets you more invested than you can possibly be in individual sports. Like something that powerlifting definitely loses is because like a lot of, a lot of individual athletes are not like that interesting to the audience. When they come and go, you almost like don't care. Like you're not, you're not watching rooting for team X, Y, or Z. You're, you're only really drawn to it when that one athlete means something to you. Well, I think there's some, I think uh, social media has actually helped that with powerlifting because people can see who, who they are and get a glimpse into their life and what they're like and stuff. And they're actually, particularly in the USAPL, there's some, some rivalries between, you know, Taylor Atwood and a couple of those other 74 guys and where they like genuinely dislike each other. And there's genuinely people commenting like I'm team Taylor, I'm team this, whatever, which is, you know, makes watching that competition more exciting. So you're definitely right there. Was Team Taylor one of the people from Twilight or was it Tyler? You remember the werewolf? I think it's Taylor. I don't know. I haven't seen it. 
there was Edward Cullen was the, the vampire and then there was a werewolf. Um, I can't remember who played the werewolf. Um, so no. Cedric Diggory versus some other dude and people were like on different things. Cedric Diggory? <laughs> you remember him from Harry Potter? Yeah. Yeah. He dies. Oh. Spoiler alert. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know what? We've got to have like a thing. We're a very current show. If something has happened in the past three months, we'll forgive you for not being up to date. But if you're like, like fourth Harry Potter came out in like 2005 or something. I don't know, probably earlier, 2003. Seven? Nah, not three, seven, I reckon. Point is early 2000s. You're 15 years behind the times. If you don't know that Cedric Diggory dies, too bad, he dies. All right, go on. All right, my uh, overrated, underrated, properly rated, Thor's 501. Probably rated. Incredible record. Not true official super world record, but the heaviest deadlift ever done. Very good. Lots of people liked it. Was exciting. There's going to be a boxing match. Properly rated. You? Agree. Completely agree. Yeah. It's gotten, it's probably gotten a little bit more hype than it should have only because there's no live sport at the moment and no one has anything else to watch. What do you reckon the appropriate amount of hype would have been? Like, I think it was cool to have that many people watch a strength sports stream, give or take how badly done the stream was. Um, I, I definitely think there probably would have been equal number of people watching it live, but I think the like constant talk about it afterwards and since probably dragged on longer than usual. Like had this normal ha- happened at this time, like the NBA playoffs would be on and there'd be the NFL on and like, you know, all this other stuff will be going on. Yeah. Um, so it's like benefited from the absence of other sports a bit. Definitely. But they, you know, they definitely could have d- done a better job with the stream, you know, and tried to bring more people into strength sports. And it was pretty, it was pretty averagely done. I didn't watch it live, but. Yeah. Look, I think it was probably rated and it's pretty cool. And I also think... Oh, yeah, I agree. The boxing. Very cool. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it off there, um, unless you have more to say, Alex. No, no, I'm good. All right. So, quick newsflash. We are in the process of organizing Kyle Dobbs to come on the podcast, probably for next week. Um, Kyle's compound performance on Instagram. Really interesting guy. Um, writes a lot, of, a lot of stuff about basically improving the quality of your movement and changing your postures to facilitate the movement patterns that we want to express for lifts. So he talks about how, how we can like set ourselves up better to express say hip extension, how to free up the thorax to move more or to create stiffness in it when we want to, um, how this ties to how we use the core and breathing and why we need to be able to modify our postures to get the most that we can out of movement. Um, he's very articulate and somebody who's, whose takes on things I've always found very interesting. So we're keen to have him on. Um, so that'll be hopefully next week, if not the week after. Um, but until then, I'm Will, Will Berkman, W.BerkmanPT. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. And follow the podcast at Weekly Weights Podcast. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Peace out.